The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 54. Beginning in verse 4, the command is, Fear not. Fear not, you who were once estranged. Fear not, you who were ashamed. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, nor will you be confounded. Why? Because you will forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood you'll remember no more because your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts, His name, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, He is called. This plea to not fear is the third command in the text. And it's the one that includes the longest expression. Sing, verse 1, enlarge, verse 2, and now fear not. And this fear not, this call to fear, is followed by two reasons. One, why shouldn't you fear? Because the day is coming when you are not going to remember the shame of your past. All the sin, all the rebellion, all the brokenness, all the running from God will be no more. He'll declare it forgiven. And don't fear because the one who's coming after you is stronger than all. And there is no level of opposition that he cannot overcome. There's no level of resistance in your own soul that he cannot extinguish. He's a redeemer. And that's where we begin today. The reason not to fear, verse 5, for your maker is your husband. Yahweh is your redeemer. Just, just look at that. How many different titles are given to the one who has come after us? Look at verse 5. How many different titles are given him? Husband, there's one. Maker, two. Lord of hosts, that's Lord of armies, three. Holy one of Israel, four. Redeemer, five. God of the whole earth, six. This is um, over-the-top reasoning. I mean, he could have just said, God's coming after you, period. But, but instead, Isaiah goes to these extreme measures to let the, the people who together are a city, a bride city called Jerusalem, know that though your rebellion was deep and wide, my love is greater and he goes out of his way. If you could just grasp the nature of your Savior, you wouldn't have fear. All kinds of fear could be present. Fear that enemies will overcome. Fear that the sins that so easily entangled, that pulled me back and pulled me away in the past, will be too strong. Fears that I'll be too weak, too lazy, too disinterested. And the declaration is, no, do not fear, because the Lord of hosts, God of armies, the Holy One, the God of all the earth, is your Redeemer. All these different titles, they've shown up, most of them in the book so far. Maker. This could have a vision of, like, the one who spoke heaven and earth into existence. 
The one who is upholding all things by the word of his power, moment by moment, every breath, allowing it in me, in you. It could be more focused. Like the God who set Abraham aside, shaped him for his purpose, and said, through you I will raise up an offspring, and in his sacrifice I will create a people. He will represent the many, and in him, not only Israel, but all those struck by problem through Adam will be redeemed. The maker, the great potter, the shaper of souls. He's the one who's coming. You may be broken, but he's a fixer. He's the maker. Your husband. The one you once rebelled against. All people in this world are in a covenant with God. Everyone is. Everyone is in relationship, and he is the sovereign. It was started with Adam. Adam was the representative head of this covenant. And in God's entering into a relationship with humanity, everyone has responsibility. It's an elected relationship of obligation with both parties having obligation. And therefore, because God is God and He's the maker of all and He's the one who had entered into that relationship initially, all the world's turning from Him is a response. A response of rebellion of a rebellious heart, a response of ingratitude. In Paul's language in Romans 1, they neither honor God or give thanks to God. They have turned on the one. But Israel in particular, out of the 70 families of the world, all of whom were in rebellion, God sets his affection on one, chooses Israel in a, in a unique, special way. They were not here as the peak of all humanity. Rather, they, will, they were here to be the instruments through which all of humanity would be served. Through them would come the Messiah. God had entered in, and yet just like Adam in the garden had rebelled, Israel as a nation had rebelled. And just like Adam was kicked out of his paradise, Israel was kicked out of theirs. But what God's doing with Israel has implications for all the rest of the world. So that's when Jesus comes and he's able to represent the nation. He's not only fixing a national problem, he's here to fix a global problem. Because through Abraham, all the world was supposed to be blessed. The the bride of God had turned from him. And yet, he has returned for her. Yahweh of armies... Yahweh of hosts is how it's usually translated. It's the same word for human armies on the planet. And so, what does that just awaken in your mind? If you know that there's opposition in your soul, or opposition that has stood against you, and you learn that the causer of all things, who is here called Yahweh of armies, is coming after you. What does that awaken within you? If you know that he's coming for you, not against you. Security. If you feel empty, you're out on the field, the battle lines are drawn, and the enemy looks strong, and then you realize, like Elisha praying for his servant, Oh God, open up his eyes that he might see all of your armies, and his eyes are awakened, and he sees that what Ahab's bringing, or not Ahab, that dude across the, the river, anyway, that... That Aramean king, that guy, what he's bringing is nothing compared to you. You're here with your chariots, your flaming, multi-winged beings, and you're coming for us. You're standing with us. You're, You're the provider. You're the protector. You're the one who's coming after me. And so, fear not. Fear not. The God of armies has got your back. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you, pursue you all the days of your life. And God's declaring, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Holy One of Israel. Holiness is not an attribute of God, I don't believe. 
It is what God is. It is the essence of all, the sum total of all of God's being. Israel, of all the peoples on the planet, recognized who he was. He was distinctly their God, and yet he should have been the God of the world. He was the Holy One in whom, through whom, for whom, by whom everything happens. There's no being like him. Everything else is distinct because he is holy. He is one who by his nature must overcome all resistance, all that is evil, all that is hostile. He will overcome, and that's the one who's entering into our world. The Holy One who's committed to make all that He touches holy. That's our God. Whatever resistance has been there, He is big enough to overcome it with His likeness. Redeemer. We'll touch on this one in a second. That's Boaz's title. He's the picture of God in that book. You've come to find refuge under the wings of Yahweh. I've come to find refuge under your wings, Ruth says. He's the means by which God is preserving David's ancestors, giving hope to David's descendants that a Redeemer from Bethlehem will come again. Redeemer. And then, if you haven't gotten it yet, he's just the God of the whole earth. Like, he stands above, bigger, greater, stronger. Everything is his. So fear not. Because this kind of power, this kind of beauty, this kind of glory is pursuing you. Nothing can stop him. What he sets out to overcome He will overcome. And that should give us hope when we think about our unsaved loved ones. There's no other Savior. This is Him. So pray. He overcame your resistance. He overcame my dumbness. He can overcome theirs. He can do it. He's that kind of a God. Fear not because your Maker is your husband. And he's declaring this to this city people. This is Paul's reasoning in Romans 8. If God is for us, if God is for us, if God the maker, husband, causer of all things, including the armies of heaven, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously, graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of the Father, and who right now is interceding for you, and for you, for me. Goodness, mercy, pursuing us. This is the word of Isaiah flowing out of the great Isaiah 53. Hope, help, fear not. Your fear of what stands no chance in the face of all this. So when we say, if you could see all these things, you wouldn't fear. Because you would see that you have all this protection, all of this resource, all of this power at your disposal. But it also seems to me to look at this as 
This kind of testimony, Brother Rick is saying, is indeed an antidote that completely should eradicate the disease of fear in our souls. It should. And ultimately will. But oh, how, how, how much my, my flesh fights against the antidote, right? How much it fights against the antidote... One thing to keep in mind is that there's different kinds of fear in the Bible. At least there's different objects. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, the problem with the world is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. If, if you just pause and meditate on this list, there should be something in you that makes you feel very small and, and does cause you to tremble. But you're not fearing punishment anymore. Work out your salvation with what? Fear. Fear. And with trembling for it's this God who's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's going to change your will and he's going to update your activity. Who's working in you both to will and to work For his good pleasure. Work out your salvation for it's that kind of big God who is working in you. Altering desire, motivation, thought patterns, and behavior. That should awaken fear. But that kind of fear is not what this, when it says don't fear, it's it's don't fear everything other than God. Don't fear that you're too weak. Don't fear that they're too strong. Don't fear failure. This sin may have beat you so many times in the past, but you can face it again because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. We get up in grace knowing that we have a God, not that we're trying to earn favor from, but who Jesus has already entered in and secured favor from so that God is 100% for us. And all of this love, all this power is now overcoming us. Goodness, mercy, so that we don't have to fear. We don't have to be anxious when we lose the job. When cancer strikes. This is so contrary. And that's why God's preaching it to us. This falls on the heels of the substitutionary atonement of Christ in in Isaiah 53. This is what we read next. In light of what Christ has done, see it, view it, look back at that pardon as purchasing for us all the great hope that we need. And with that, a grace to not have to fear. To not have to fear the curseness of this world, the difficulties of this world, the struggles with, within marriage, the struggles with rebellious kids. This week, this daddy was blessed. My daughter called me, actually she called my second eldest daughter at 5.30 in the morning. Daddy was getting ready and my oldest daughter had just gotten a text that awakened anxiety. And then she heard daddy was there and daddy was going to get in the car. And so she said, can I call you? So daddy, for the next 15 minutes, got to talk with my daughter. And I told her she was spinning. And it's not healthy the way you're spinning. So just stop talking, I said. And what I want you to do right now is turn from your anxiety And I want you to begin to pray words of thanksgiving. Think about all the ways that God has been faithful to you in your past. And then at the end, I want you to pray your petition, and then your daddy will pray. What am I doing? Don't be anxious about anything, but with everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, 
Make your request known to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So, so I was using the tools that God gave us in Philippians chapter 4 with my daughter and calling her to reflect on how this God has proven himself in her past in order to serve as an anxiety quencher, as a fear dissolver. And it worked. Not lastingly, by the afternoon she needed to refight, rebattle, remind, right? In her weakness, though, he is strong and he's proving herself strong. And to hear her reflect in her prayer, what she prayed was Proverbs. One of the things she prayed was Proverbs thirty-one, and she she just said, "God, let me be like the woman in Proverbs thirty-one who does not fear the future, because she knows it's secure in Your hand." To hear her reach in and grab onto precious promises, and say, "That's the kind of woman I'm identifying with." That's, that's what made this daddy delight. She was battling with the truth of this text, working itself out in the modern day church. Just look at some of these texts here. Fear not, you worm. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Remember, they're just... Isaiah 1 just said they're sick. They've got wounded hearts. They've been living in rebellion. They're spiritually disabled. And God's just saying, I'm coming after you with medication for your spiritual problem. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. So, okay. The Redeemer is that one, besides whom there is no other supreme power. When you think of the pantheon of heaven, only have one being there. From whom, through whom, to whom are all, the, all things. There is no God besides me. I don't think he's saying, there shall not be unto you any other God besides me. Meaning, as long as I'm in the front of the line, and there's no one standing next to me, you can put a whole bunch behind me. Rather, he's talking about... There's no one in my presence. I have lots of helpers. They're called angels. But none of them are supreme. They're all servants. They're all listening to my voice and doing my bidding. I am the only judge. I'm the only source. I'm the only savior. There is no God besides me. I am redeemer. That's what he declares. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel, his holy one, to one who's deeply despised. Now, I want you to see this. This is right after Isaiah 49. We've spent lots of time there. Israel, the person, is called to redeem Israel, the people. Right? I think this is Israel, the person, and I do because the you here is masculine singular following verse 3, which isn't on the screen, but where Israel is called the person. You are my servant Israel, and I've raised you up to redeem Israel. But it's too light a thing that you would only redeem Israel, the people. I'll make you a light unto the nations. That's the verse just before this. And then it says, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One. But Israel's been portrayed in the book as anything but holy. But Israel, the person, is very different. And God is the one who enters into Isaiah 53 and even redeems his son. To the one who's deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. The redeemer of Israel, his holy one, to the one deeply despised. The very nation of Israel is, is abhorring this Israel. We're talking about Israel the person, is the, Israel the people is the nation who's standing against abhorring despising the person who is the Holy One of God. But what does God say? 
Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves before you because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, my servant king, who will enter in and fix the nation's problem and fix the nations, plural, their problem as well. Yeah. This Holy One, I believe, is Jesus. The ESV puts an and between these two, but there's no and in the Hebrew text. So, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, but then down here, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, this Holy One of Israel, in the full phrase, is Yahweh. But the you, the you here, is the, the, Messiah, the um, Messiah, the servant king. That's the you who's been despised by his nation. And yet kings of the world will rise up and call you blessed. So in 5405, is it Yahweh? I think it's Yahweh who's just imaged himself in the God-man whose name is Emmanuel. Whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So I think, I think that, yes, in Isaiah 54... The Holy One of Israel, I think this is Yahweh, but he's testified already in Isaiah 53 that the way he's going to show himself as the pursuer is through his representative who is called his very arm. Final comment, and then we're moving on. Yeah, that's the same you. It's masculine, singular, and it's the same singular person who is called as the covenant that is in his body the relationship between man and god will be resolved he will be the embodiment of mediation to build that relationship same person okay look at verse six six through ten is where we're going to go now this reason fear not because god's coming after you that's why you need not fear he's god of all things and he's proven himself as redeemer, as savior. He's, he's your husband. When you were rebellious, he's now pursuing once again, and he will transform. This reason is now going to be developed further. Notice how verse 6 begins. It's for. Just like verse 5, for your maker is your husband, for the Lord has called you. I, I see this as an expansion of... Expansion of the ground clause, the basis clause in verse 5. So here's what it says. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. Now, cast off. That's a passive verb. Cast off by whom? God. God. So what could cause God to justly cast off his wife? What? Okay, discipline. He's disciplining adultery. She's committed adultery and God is not operating unjustly here. Her heart has been turning away from her commitment. The people who is the bride, have been, in Hosea's language, spiritually adulterous. They've pursued other masters, other lovers, other lords. Their hearts have been controlled by someone else. Think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. Think about Sarah who called her husband Lord. No one can serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or despise the one and love the other. No one can serve both God and mammon, worldly possessions. Love versus hate. And that's what's happened. There's been a distinguish, uh, a uh, extinguishing 
distinguishing, no. Extinguishing of the covenantal commitment in the heart of this bride. No loyalty, no, no love, no support. She's not helping anymore. And so God entered in, it says in verse 6, and she was like a bride who was cast off. Shamed. Grieved in spirit. We see reference to this elsewhere. Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife. I am not her husband. Notice how the pleading is being done to the three children of Hosea. They're the offspring of Hosea's mother, Gomer. Gomer is the bride. And yet, within Hosea 2, that's merely a parable for someone else. Who's the bride of God in Hosea 2? Israel as a nation. And so we have to be able to distinguish the offspring of Israel and Israel. In the same way that in in our story here, we're having to distinguish the people from the city. The city is this image of consolidation. It's 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 somewhat like the Ford Motor Company. And in that are... President, vice presidents, CFO, and a whole bunch of workers who keep it going. They are Ford. Jerusalem here is the, rep- is, is the representative entity that includes so much history of rebellion, generation after generation of the offspring of this relationship between God and his bride, the offspring going astray. And in their going astray, they're merely doing what the entity as a whole has taught them to do. Their mother has led them astray. So Israel is both the people and the offspring. And and we're having to see that here because plead with your mother, plead, she's not my wife, I'm not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face to turn away from this rebellion. And it's the children of the present generation who are the offspring of Israel. They're they're supposed to be the ones who turn. And as they turn, the mother will be turning. And the image is, I'm going to redeem the mother, and with that, all the offspring that are associated her will be changed. That was of the northern kingdom. Now here's of the southern kingdom. Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel up north, I had sent her away with a decree decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear me. But she too went and played the whore. So Judah's down south. Northern kingdom of Israel is up there. God allowed Assyria to come in and destroy Samaria in 723. And Judah down south is watching. And Jeremiah's there preaching to a people who've just seen their older sister go down. And Jeremiah's preaching and he's saying, you haven't learned. You didn't see anything. You're not fearing God. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And just as God judged the northern kingdom, he promised that he would judge the southern kingdom. And what is true of Israel is merely a picture in a small way of what is true of the whole world. Just as Adam was the son of God, called to reflect and resemble and represent God on earth, he disobeyed. And now Israel, the corporate son of God, There's different metaphors, right? The son, also the bride, rebels, is spiritually adulterating. And the result is judgment. And that's that's the background here to verse 6. 
But it is not the final word. Look at verses 7 and 8. What I simply mean is, when I see, so active verbs, the subject is doing the action, whereas in a passive verb, like is cast off. By whom? The ball was hit. That's passive. Versus he hit the ball. Active. The ball was hit. By whom? She was cast off. By whom? Implication, her husband. And who's the husband in this text? It's, it's Yahweh, who's been the, the husband of the city who's been rebellious. And so there was a, the language, and it's a hard language, but the language of the text here is God gave her a certificate of divorce, a justifiable one, because everything God does is just. And yet, he's now going to pursue and transform. Look at verses 7 and 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather. And I just want you to hear, this isn't just, this isn't just about Israel the nation. What is true of Israel the nation is true of all who were in Adam. And the one Isaiah 53 answer is coming to solve the problem of the many. And the many is bigger than just the Jews. It includes all of us in this room. If we are Christ's. The Lord has called you. Sorry, for a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I'll gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. So much so that verse 4 said it was as if she was a widow. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Look at God's promise to redeem and transform His bride. I've got two verses from Isaiah, and then we'll go outside of Isaiah. Isaiah's reflections. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, O city... I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Transformation, healing, that's what's being envisioned here. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. Your land married. That's just so weird. The land will be married. But that's what I'm saying. This is a city. The bride is a city. And Paul can say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, the Jerusalem that is above is our mother. That's how we get new birth certificates. We get a new identity, a new mother, connected with a new relationship. The land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Therefore, behold, I will lure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness, this woman people. I'll speak tenderly to her. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. And because of what Jesus did, he would be unjust to not pardon And he's not unjust. He will redeem injustice. In righteousness. He's going to be working to establish right order. Wherein he is the head. The husband head. Will be recognized supremely. And treasured for who he is. Perfectly respected by his bride. I'll betroth you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. You shall know the Lord. Days are coming, declares the Lord. That in Jeremiah, you can just put it over to the side. Days are coming. Whenever that phrase shows up, it's always a signal that he's going to talk about the new covenant. Consistently, all throughout the book. Days are coming. Okay, 
That's not the days I'm living in, Jeremiah's audience, but they're coming when I'll make a new covenant. At one level, it appears as though it's with the same bride. I'll make it with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, meaning that they're not going to be divided anymore. There's going to be one people of God. And they're going to need, as we already learned in Isaiah 54, to have a big house. Because all of a sudden there's going to be not only them redeemed, but they're going to possess nations. People from South Sudan and Peru, Germany, Singapore, included all in this family. Days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the two houses. Not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Mosaic covenant, contrasting with the new covenant. My covenant that they broke. There it is. There was a marriage, even though I was a husband to them. And yet that, that wifely bride rejected her partner. And yet God's going to enter in. The very next verses, I'm going to take my law and no longer keep it in a box that you can't read. I'm going to make you the box. Jeremiah 17.1, sin is inscribed on the tablet of your heart. But now, now the law will be written on your heart. Your very lives will be the place where my presence hovers. You'll be like a a movable temple. Wherever you go, I will be. And my law will be written within so that everyone can begin to read it as you reflect and resemble and represent my character to the world. You'll be a transformed bride, not the same bride, a transformed one. Let us rejoice and exalt. Give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Think about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to purify for himself a people. Ephesians chapter 5. The brides made herself ready. It was granted that this bride clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. No more shame, no more baggage. All the past is the past. And behold, all things are new. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The bride is a singular person who's wearing beautiful garments. And yet, what are those beautiful garments? The righteous deeds of the saints. The one and the many. How about this one? Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues. Final judgment at the end of the age. He said, come. I want to show you, John, the bride of God, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me a people? No, a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The bride, let me show her, show her to you. There she is, in all of her radiant splendor. This is how John was reading Isaiah. He wasn't thinking about a place with buildings and a temple that people can touch. He was thinking about a people in whom the presence of God would reside. At the center of the universe, the bride is a city, glorious in splendor. And we are its stones. The apostles shape the foundation. Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And we are its structure. Being built up into a holy and sacred temple. Ephesians Ephesians 2 verse 20. I just love this phrase here at the end. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. 
Often, the verb love here is simply translated steadfast love by itself. You see it exactly happen that way in verse 10. My steadfast love will not depart from you. That's just the word that's translated two verses earlier only as love because the everlasting part is an additional adjective with everlasting steadfast love. I will have compassion. I've trusted in your steadfast love. That's the word that we have here. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Have mercy on me, O God. On what basis? According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. With everlasting love, he enters into our broken world, into our broken souls, and has compassion. In spite of who we were, has compassion. That's our Redeemer. Let it just awaken celebration, awe, fear, Reverence, gratitude. Look at the last two verses. What I'm talking about is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion. Compassion. What's he talking about when he says Noah? Anybody? The covenant not to flood again. So, what was the sign of the covenant with Noah? The rainbow. So, the bow of God, it's the exact same term for what archers in battle took with them. Exact same term, intentionally so. And the bow is pointed up rather than down. And the declaration is... When you see it, and when I see it, I will remember that never again will I flood the earth. Never again will I curse the ground because of man. I'm never going to do it again. Notice how the promise arises. Remember, Noah had to take lots of animals with him. How many of each kind? Two, except... The clean. And how many of the clean animals did he have to take? Seven apiece. Why? Because God already had a plan. That when he got off the ark, he knew that those eight people who got off the ark had the same nature as the people who had just died in the water. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, Why is God bringing the flood? Because the wickedness of man's heart is evil from his youth. And there's eight people left on the planet. They get off the ark, and God declares, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It was the same way before the flood as after the flood. The only thing that makes makes Noah different is the grace of God showed up in Noah's life. So he's got all these seven clean animals of every sort, and he gets out, and the previous verse says, first thing he does, he gets off the ark, he builds an altar and burns sacrifice. Before the tabernacle, the only sin offering was the burnt offering. And that's what it says Noah gave. A burnt offering. And every sin offering of the Old Testament points ahead to a greater offering. Every one. This 
promise of no flood, again, to destroy all the world, grew out of the smelling aroma of a blood sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, that itself pointed ahead to a greater one. Because of what Jesus did, He can let the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He can let rain come on the just and on the unjust because of what Jesus did at the cross. But what Jesus did at the cross was much more great than just a common grace, the purchase of common grace that everyone can enjoy. No, he was also purchasing saving grace. But what I'm talking about has something common to what this was about. I'll establish with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Never, never. And what I'm talking to you about, God says, as this redeeming God, it has something that it's like that. It's like that. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, will be broken. Very similar. Like the days of Noah, I have sworn... The mountains might depart. The hills might be removed. But know this, my steadfast love will never, never, never forsake. But if God can do that justly, it was justly that He punished Israel. It was justly that He kicked Adam out of the garden and all of us in Him, separated from conception, from the presence and love of God. At least, in one sense, the love of God. We have to distinguish elective love of God from the love that He has for the whole world that moved Him to send His own Son, that whoever believes will not perish. And yet, if you do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. Last verse of John 3. I am moving, bringing an unchanging eternally unchanging covenant of peace. That's what he says here. My covenant of peace won't be removed. He's talking about the new covenant, and it gets lots of different names. What are some of the names given or the ways that the new covenant is described in the Old Testament? You got the covenant of peace. We get it in our passage. That's one title. Anybody else have any others? Everlasting. Everlasting covenant. That's another way that it's talked about. That's two. Pardon? It's just called the new covenant. We get that one time in Jeremiah 31, yet it's the most common title because that's the one that Jesus pulled from in the Last Supper. And that's the one that Paul uses in the Writer to the Hebrews at least contrasts the covenant with the old covenant. Everlasting covenant, sometimes it's just called the covenant. Specifically, I will make you a covenant. And he's talking to the Messiah, the servant person, who will stand in himself as a covenant between God and man, binding this relationship through his blood. A promise that God will be, that God will give a new or unified heart and a new spirit. You know, I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. That's new covenant talk. A covenant of peace here and new covenant there. Here's the other times where covenant of peace shows up in the Old Testament outside of Isaiah 54. Two times. And both of them, the contexts, are built on in the New Testament, identifying for us, I'm talking about this, this is about fulfillment, what the church is experiencing is this, what Isaiah was envisioning is being fulfilled through Jesus today. Here we go. I'll set up over them, Ezekiel 34, I'll set up over them one shepherd. The language of one shepherd only shows up three times in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 12 Ezekiel 34 and 37. And it's in Ezekiel 34 and 37 that covenant of peace shows up 
the other two times in the Old Testament. One shepherd, covenant of peace. My servant David shall feed them. Remember, the first David, he's been dead for 400 years by the time Ezekiel preaches this. So my servant David is the new David, the coming David, the one that David's own life in the Old Testament pointed to, a greater king than David. So my servant David will feed them. He'll be the shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace. And I'll banish wild beasts from the lands that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I'll make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. I'll send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. It's like whatever's going to happen in this day, the covenant of peace is like new creation. That's what it's like. As if a lion and a lamb will be laying down together. That's what it's like. And they shall know in that day that I am the Lord their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord. One shepherd, covenant of peace. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, Jesus said. I have sheep that are not Jews, Jesus said. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And I think he's echoing Ezekiel 34 and 37. Here's Ezekiel 37. My servant David will be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules. They'll be careful to obey my statutes. Not like the bride of the past. No, she'll be changed. Perfectly Already, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Just not sanctified completely already. Perfected in the eyes of God already, and yet progressively being sanctified. Increasingly until completion. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant. I'll set, there's everlasting covenant and covenant of peace side by side. Same covenant. And I'll set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now what I want you to see is this is, I think, already being fulfilled. Not by a people in the promised land over there, but by a people who in the promised land up there. Already, but not yet. Let's see how Paul handles this. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what the covenant of peace is going to bring. It's going to bring peace with God and man. Then the nations will know in that day that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I don't think that's anticipating a physical building in the future where the temple will exist in the middle of humanity. Here's Paul. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. As he said through Ezekiel, I'll make my dwelling with them. I'll walk among them. That's Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. These two verses, Ezekiel 37 and Leviticus 26, are being brought together. And I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Paul says the church. Remember Galatians 4. The Jerusalem that is on earth, that's Hagar. That's Old Covenant. The Jerusalem that is in heaven is our mother. That's where our birthright is. That's where our new identity is established. Jesus took the cup. Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out to bring peace between God and man. Forgiveness. And finally, since we've been justified by faith, what's happened? The covenant of peace has been established. Peace with God through the Lord Jesus, through whom we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So just rest today. 
being part of the bride that has been redeemed. That you have a God who is 100% for you. You have a God who's looking at you as precious and who is increasingly clothing you with garments of righteousness. But already, He's on our side. His mercies, His tender love has overcome. It's worth celebrating. You need not fear today. You need not fear failure, rejection, no condemnation. He's for us. Father, we praise you that you are for us. You are our hope and our help through Christ who strengthens us. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Claiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.